from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're going to read down to verse 33 in just a moment. There is a Welsh author that Alana and I uh, both enjoy reading his books. Um, he writes very absurd type books, for instance. Uh, one of the book series that he writes is called the Nursery Crimes uh, series. And basically what he has done is he takes the gingerbread man and uh, those types of stories and he turns them into detectives that solve crimes in nursery rhyme world. Okay, it, it, It's really bizarre. If y'all go read him, you'll come back and you'll look at me in Atlanta completely different next week. But anyway, we do enjoy his books, and, and we've gone to a couple different times when he's been in the States and, and done book readings and signings. We, we've gone to listen to him and talk and, and tell stories. He's a great storyteller. And one year we went, and I think it was in Raleigh, and he was there telling a story. So this is his story, but part of his story is he doesn't remember all that happens. He just remembers one line from the story. And as he tells it, he was standing in a hotel lobby uh, one day, and he heard behind him two older women, women talking. And he didn't tune in until the last sentence was uttered, when one of the women uttered, good heavens, quite the reverse. And the point of his story was, it just always bothered me because I want to know what came before that. What came before it that, no, it's not that, it's, it's quite the reverse. And for some reason, that has stuck with me in Atlanta through all these years, and every now and then we'll just look at each other and go, no, good heavens, quite the reverse. And, and as I tell you that story, you're going, how's he going to connect this to John chapter 16? Well, it's going to connect in this way. Jesus has been informing his disciples that his departure is near. And as he is telling them this, their hearts become troubled, right? They're, it even says their hearts are troubled. They don't know what is happening. And then as they get closer to the, the cross and Jesus starts to give them more explicit instructions, that, that trouble increases. And then Jesus looks at them and says, you know, my hour is at hand. That trouble in, increases, and throughout the Gospel of John, John does not shy away from recording the disciples' troubled hearts and how they're feeling and the anxiety that they are going through as Jesus gets closer to the cross. And it makes sense because when Jesus looks at them and says, in a little while, you will not see me anymore. And then all of a sudden they're going, hey, wait a minute, for three, three and a half years, we followed you. We've believed in you. We've done what you've called us to do. We think you're the Messiah and you're telling us that you're going to, to leave us. That is going to lead us not just with a troubled heart, but with a troubled life. And after you're gone, we're going to be filled with anxiety and sorrow and trouble and not know what to do. And in John 16, Jesus looks at them and says, good heavens, quite the reverse. Because after I'm gone, you're going to have a life that is going to be defined by joy. That after the cross, though you think that your heart will be troubled, you will be surprised to find joy. 
This is what he says beginning in John 16, verse 16, down to verse 33. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying? A little while you will not see me, and a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave, leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is in me. I have said these things that you may... To you that you may that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This morning, as we look at joy, I want you to notice four truths from this section. And the first truth is this: the joy of a believer is revealed in times of sorrow. The joy of a believer is revealed in times of sorrow. From the very beginning of John's gospel, the cross is in is in the picture. The cross does not come as a surprise towards the end. John introduces it in John 1. And as you move through John 1, the, the focus of the cross becomes sharper, right? In the beginning, it's, like, it's kind of like looking at Pilate Mountain on a hazy day. You can kind of see it, but then when the haze burns away, it's, it's sharp and it's in focus. You can see it. The same thing with the cross. And so Jesus starts out telling them, look, in a little while you're not going to see me, then you will see me. He's talking about the cross, and then he's talking about the resurrection that is coming afterwards. And this really confuses the disciples. They are confused by what is going to happen. So they talk amongst themselves, right? We see them doing this all the time, right? I kind of feel sorry for them because they never get the picture. We see over and over, they talk among themselves, and Jesus looks at them and going, Hey, is this what you're talking about? <laughs> They're talking about themselves. What do they mean? And Jesus goes, Hey, this is... What you're asking, where am I going? 
What's going to happen? How are you not going to see me? And then you're going to see me again. And he's pointing them forward to the, res- to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he says to them in very strong words, look where he says in verse 23, right? He says, truly, true, excuse me, verse 20, he says, truly, truly, which is the 23rd one of those statements, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. When he points to that time to come, when they won't see him, he makes sure to focus in on their emotions and how they're going to feel. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't say, you're going to see the cross and be filled with joy. You're still not going to understand at that moment. And you're going to be standing off to the cross, and you're going to be sorrowful and lamenting, again, very Deep words. Lament is not just, I'm, I'm crying, I'm having a bad day. This is deep emotional distress. And he says, you're going to basically be on one side of the cross feeling this way. And he says, at the same time, on the other side of the cross, the world is going to be there. And instead of weeping and lamenting, they're going to be rejoicing. The cross, the crucifixion, is when Jesus' hour and the world's hour collides. And in that collision, there are two different results. One of sorrow, one of weeping. But there's going to be a reverse. They're going to be surprised by joy. Because after Jesus says that, He says, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Your sorrow will turn to joy. They're standing at the cross looking at Jesus and his body is beaten, it's battered, it's bruised, it's tortured. And in that moment, they can't think, how in the world is this going to bring me joy? But the world, on the other hand, is rejoicing, right? Because the troublemaker is dead. It is better for one man to die than for the nation to be punished. So so they're rejoicing. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a great reversal that is going to happen when your sorrow will be turned to joy. Because you will see me again. And in that moment when you see me again, and you see me after the resurrection, you will realize and understand what I have been teaching you and why I had to go to the cross. And in that moment, your sorrow becomes joy. And for the disciples, it's not that their joy is going to be revealed in times of sorrow, but in a specific time of sorrow. And the same can be said for us, right? We, we, we look at the cross. And there should be sorrow when we look at the cross. Because in that, we need to realize that the Savior is on the cross because of my sins. We need to make it much more personal. It's not that He is on the cross for the world's sins. He's on the cross for my sins. He's on the cross for your sins. And in that moment, we are sorrowful that that is what it takes to save us. But that sorrow is turned to joy because we understand then that He redeems us from our sins and He raises us from the dead and gives us life. And that brings us joy because we're no longer dead in our sins. And Jesus uses an analogy. And I find this to be absolutely hilarious. He uses the analogy of a woman 
giving birth to 11 guys. I think that's funny. Because we have absolutely no idea what that is like. You've got the fishermen over here who have no clue. You got a tax collector who doesn't have a clue. You have a zealot who doesn't have a clue. You have every guy who was in Red Bank this morning who doesn't have a clue what childbirth is like. Well, I was there with her. I've tried that line. It's not the same. All right? And I know you guys, you're trying not to laugh because you got to ride home too. I understand. But from hearing my wife speak... And from you hearing your wife speak, we recognize and understand that it's not that the pain is forgotten. It's just that the joy is so great that it overrides the sorrow. That, yeah, that was painful, but look, I have a beautiful baby in in the world now. And the joy overrides the sorrow. And the same thing here at the cross. Joy overrides the sorrow. And while we laugh at that illustration, it's it's actually been used many times before. You don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 26 uses this same analogy. It says, Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pains when she is near to given birth, so we were because of you, Yahweh. We were pregnant, we withered, but we were giving birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And that passage in Isaiah is pointing forward to Israel and the pain that Israel is in leading up to giving birth to the Messiah. It's like, look, you're going to be in pain, but arise and give joy. The Messiah comes. Arise and give give joy. That the Messiah has come, that the Messiah has died on the cross for our sins. Because it reminds us of our guilt is gone. It reminds us that we now are the righteousness of Jesus. It reminds us that we have an eternal destiny that is secure with Him. And that gives us joy. It gives us joy. And it's a joy that is different from the world. They can't find that joy because they don't know Him. (laughs) That joy that is revealed from a time of sorrow from the cross is only for believers who know Him as Lord and Savior. But then Jesus continues and He says, The joy of a believer is resistant to all attacks. Look down at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Though we're not told in Scripture, I can't help but feel that there's a play on word, that, that, or, or John is drawing our attention to something else as well, right? We go from sorrow at the cross to joy at the cross. While at the same time, I think he also, as he, as he says this right here, that, that no one is going to take away your, your joy. No one will, will steal it from you. Kind of reminds me of the world that's rejoicing at the cross. 
I have a feeling that after the resurrection, they're not rejoicing that much. Right? You can go back to Matthew 28, 11 through 15, where, where Caiaphas is, is trying to figure out what to do because the man that he hung on the cross and the man that should be in the tomb is not in the tomb. And the Roman centurions come to him and they're trying to figure out what to do as they report back to the religious authorities because the centurions knew that they were in trouble. The Jewish leaders know, hey, if this gets out, we're in trouble. And they're trying to to figure out what to do. And so Caiaphas says, look, hey, I'm going to give you some hush money. And and what I need you to do is just go away, not be seen. And if anybody asks you anything, you heard nothing, you saw nothing, you know nothing. I need you to play dumb. And if anybody comes and and asks, then I'll talk to the governor. I'll tell the governor about it. I'll, I'll handle it. I'll, I'll smooth over everything with you. So at the cross, right, the world is rejoicing and the believers are in sorrow. But three days later, after the uh, resurrection, it's been a reversal. The world is trying to figure out what to do. They're in sorrow. They, they've got the anxiety now, but the, the disciples are rejoicing Because the joy that the world has is fleeting and disappears, but the joy that the believers have never disappears and cannot be taken away. No one or no thing this morning can take away our joy. Why? Because our joy is tied to the truth that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. That happened. It is fixed in time. It is true. And because of that, that is where our joy lies. And that will never change. Everything else in the world is transient. Everything else in the world will disappear. Think of all the things that you have done or the world tries to find joy. Until eventually one day it either disappears or you just can't do it. Think of how many professional athletes look to find joy in playing professional sports. And that's great and that's fun until they're 80 and they can't throw that football anymore. People try to find joy in in shopping and that's great until you can't shop anymore. Or clothes just don't mean the same to you anymore. The world tries to find joy in sex, hobbies, drugs, works, politics, philosophy, science, all these different places. And there's going to come a point in life where either that is gone or it just doesn't bring you joy because you realize it just wasn't that important to you anymore. Because those things don't last. It's a good thing that's not where our joy is. Our joy is in the cross. And the salvation Jesus provides because that never ceases to go away. It's always there. And when we rightly understand that, when we understand that the joy of of a believer is is resilient against all attacks, that nothing can take it away from us, it causes us to live a different life. right? We can go to Romans 6, 17. When Paul... Is, is writing. And he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, right? Rightly understood, we, we live differently because we're no longer a slave to sin, and we have joy in that. We're the righteousness of God. But that joy also sets us to live a life of freedom, right? Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Think about that. What that means is the most powerful weapon Satan can use in the world against me to rob me of my joy will fail every single time. Because through Christ and salvation and the cross, I have been set free. And instead of pursuing, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, everything under the sun... And chasing after the wind, only to discover that vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. I don't have to do that. I can live a life of joy, not wondering about whether or not the world will take it from me. Because my joy is in the cross. My joy is in Christ, and it will never, ever change. And I think this is important for for Red Bank right now. Because I, I think... The sorrow of the past few months that we have been through. And this is the second time in these past three months that God providentially has brought us to a passage of Scripture that deals with joy after a death. Right? We all miss Joe. We all miss Rick. We all miss Doris. But even in death, our joy is not taken away. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 is is so powerful. Paul is is writing that story, writing that that chapter, and he's talking about the joy that we have in Christ. And he gets down and, and he finishes it, talking about the victory that we have. And he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about it and we think of what the world does to try to rob us of our joy and try to rob us of our our, our joy founded in Christ and we look at everything, the one thing that the world and Satan uses as a cudgel to drive us to sin, to try to find joy in other pursuits, is the truth that one day we will all die. But boy, when you take away that fear... When there is no fear in death, when we look at death and say, I don't care. You have no hold over my life. You cannot take away my joy. When we understand that, when we understand that at the cross, sin was defeated, death was defeated, and death's fate was sealed, and Satan's fate was sealed, then there is nothing in the world that can take away our joy. And if the greatest enemy of joy is death, and it's been defeated, then for a believer, we are free to live unashamedly and unfearfully. Because it can't touch my joy. It absolutely can't. Because there is nothing (laughs) in this world. There is no one 
that God created. There is no being more powerful than me, but not powerful as God. There is, including Satan, there is nothing that can touch that joy. So I can live unfearfully. I can live unashamedly because my joy is in the cross. But then Jesus connects the life of a joy in a believer through prayer. The joy of a believer is renewed by answered prayer. And this is not the first time that Jesus has, has made this claim. When you look down in verses 23 through 28, Jesus starts talking about prayer. And he says, look, you can come and, and you can pray. The hour is coming in verse 25. I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. You ask in my name. Verse 24, ask in my name and, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Man, what, what a great promise. What a great promise. Verse 24, truly, truly, right? That, that's, that's number 24, verse 23, excuse me. Say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In that day, after the crucifixion, there's, there's going to become a new way of relating to the Father. And the new way of relating to the Father is about access. We have access to the Father. And the way that we have access to the Father is through Jesus' name. And it's accomplished again on the crucifixion and is secured by His ascension in verse 28 when He goes back to the Father. So now that He is with the Father, we have access to the Father. As one person wrote, and I will, I will change one word in his quote to make it personal. Quote, The name of Christ is both the passport by which we may claim access into the audience chamber of God and the medium through which the divine answer comes. Christ is the way. I like that passport. Y'all have traveled with passports and you know what a passport means. Passport grants you access to the country that you're entering. No passport, no access. And I've been through enough passport controls. I just, I, I, I just had that visual image. You walk up and you hand them your passport and, and they check it. And you know, The greatest time of my life when I traveled was when we entered Russia one time and we got to go through the diplomatic line because we had a baby. We got to go through that. They're like, just, just come on over here. I'm like, hey, look at me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, v, I'm a VIP. I'm going through the diplomatic passport line. And it's probably just because they wanted to stop hearing the baby cry, but you know. We had access. We could enter the country. We have access, right? But it's not a country that we're entering. What are we entering? We are entering into the throne room of God where it says, come boldly. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We can go to God in prayer through Jesus. And Jesus says, look, you come to the Father and you do it through my name. Now, this is the model. Now, just, just a quick side note. We can pray to Jesus. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. They are all God. That is the Godhead. However, the normative pattern of prayer in the New Testament is to the Father through the name of Jesus. And the reason why... Have you ever thought why? Have you ever gone, why do we end our prayer in Jesus' name? Well, because my mom did. 
and, and grandma and grandpa did, and great grandma and grandpa did, and, and we can go back to 1859, so whoever was in the pulpit in 1859 in Red Bank, and he did, so we do. <laughs> but there's a reason. And the reason is the hour. The reason is we ask in his name based on what he accomplished on the cross. It all goes back to the cross. Our Father, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. We do it because we are trusting and believing in his atoning sacrifice on the cross to grant us access to the Father. Because if that didn't happen, we don't have the access. So we come to the Father through Jesus. And he, he tells us to ask, and it will be answered. Now, that's, that's, again, tremendous privilege. We can ask the Father for what we want. In verse 23, he says, whatever, right? Whatever you ask. Now, that's a pretty broad category, but let's look at verse 24. He says, ask and you receive that your joy may be full. And the, way, the word full there is, is a continual, feel, continual feeling of joy. Not that it's just once and done. It's just over and over and over and over. Because we need to recognize that there are times in our lives where we feel spiritually dry. Most of you have or at one time did have well water. And you know what happens when the well runs dry. Usually the answer is you got to dig deeper. But there are times in our lives when we are, we are spiritually dry. And Jesus says in that time, go to the Father and ask and listen to Him so that the answer will come to you and you will be refreshed and renewed as the well just overflows with joy. Now, here's the flip side of that, right? Let's read that verse again real quick. The end of verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What are you missing out on if you don't pray? What are you missing out on? <laughs> You're missing out on a connection to the one who brings you continual joy. You're missing out on being refreshed and renewed. Well, Gary, I just don't know why I feel so, so far from God and, and why God doesn't seem to be listening to me. Really? When was the last time you prayed? And if you have to do that, you might have your own answer. Well, Gary, I don't have time. Yeah, you do. <laughs> just, yeah, you do. Prayer doesn't have to be four hours every morning. Well, I believe in a concentrated time of prayer, yes. Just pray continually throughout the day. Talk to the Father. Go to Him and ask whatever it is you need. And, and I know what you're thinking, well, Gary, there's got to be a caution to that whatever, right? I know you well enough. There is. We need to be careful because although there is a normative pattern, we need to make sure that we don't fall in and just think the pattern guarantees the answer, right? 
Father, right now and today, I want to walk outside and it be 72 degrees with no humidity. In Jesus' name, amen. There's the door if anybody would like to check. It's not a magical incantation, so we need to, to not think about that. That's not, that's not prayer. So how do we understand? How do we understand the whatever so that we can get what we want? And I'm going to give you two words very quickly. And the first word is objectives. Objectives. Right? Matthew 6, 7 through 13. If you don't know how to pray, Matthew 6, 7 through 13 is a great way to teach you how to pray. It is called the Lord's Prayer. Foreshadowing, next week we will discuss whether or not it is actually the Lord's Prayer. Okay? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? You want to pray and get an answer that is yes, pray with the objectives that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. What are the objectives? Worshiping God. Hallowed be your name. Being about the business of the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Daily provisions. Father, give me what I need today. Forgiveness of sins. Forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Guidance away from sin and to righteousness. Do not lead me from temptation, but deliver me from all evil. Those are the objectives. Tailor them and customize them to your situation and what you're going through. But those are the objectives that are universal to everybody. And the second word is submission. When he answers, submit. Recognize that Jesus is, God is going to answer. Submit to his answer. And the reason that's important is because we must understand that the infinite God who knows so much more than we do, and we talked about that in Sunday school, didn't we? We can't understand how God knows everything, but he does. May have a different and better answer or a more needed answer for us than what we're praying. So when we pray the objectives in the Lord's Prayer, and He answers differently, then we pray, not my will, Father, but yours be done. You know what's beautiful about that? It's a guaranteed yes every time. Every single time. And Jesus says, prayer will renew your joy. But then lastly, the joy of a believer is secured by a triumphant Jesus. Jesus starts out, you're going to be sorrowful. Hey, let's go turn to joy. (laughs) And then Jesus comes right back at the very end and says, oh, by the way, let's discuss your anxiety one more time. (laughs) Right? Verse 32, the hour is coming. You will be scattered each to your own home. So there he is again. You're you're going to leave me alone. So he points back and says, at the crucifixion, that hour, you're going to be frightened. You're going to be scared. You're going to leave. You're going to go running because the authorities are looking for you. They're going to want you dead. After all, he just told them the world will hate them. You're going to be afraid. 
And he says to them, look at what he says. He says, you will abandon me. You will scatter and you will leave me alone. But I am not alone. Why is he not alone? Because the Father is with him. In the moment of the crucifixion, the disciples abandon Christ, but the Father does not abandon his Son. He is still there. And because the Father doesn't abandon Jesus, that leads to a thought that is both glorious and humbling. Christianity didn't depend on the disciples. Christianity does not depend on me or on you. It's glorious because it means we can't mess it up. It's humbling because we realize that Jesus uses us. But it is not dependent on us. It is not dependent on the person that you knew that one time who looked like they were all on fire for Christ only to abandon and to leave. It is not dependent on that. Because if you point to that, you might think, well, Christianity failed. No, it, it, it didn't. Because it's dependent on the cross and a triumphant Jesus. It never fails. It never fails. I, I think it was Chesterton who said one time, Christianity has not so much been uh, tried and found wanting as not tried. That's a very rough paraphrase, by the way. Right? It's, it's, it's not depending on us. It does not fail. And because it does not fail, because it is dependent on a triumphant Jesus, he says to them, look, you will have peace. I've said these things, that you may have peace. And when we think of peace, right, I mean, the first peace that we have is with God. We're no longer fighting against him. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were at enemies with God. But then through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, through that triumphant Christ on the cross and over death and sin, we now have peace with the Father. But there's also the peace that His disciples being Jewish and in the Jewish context would have understood that is, that is a, a deeper peace than we think about today. The only way we usually define peace is absence of conflict. If there's no conflict, we're at peace. But the Hebrew idea of, of peace is defined by a whole life, a satisfying life. And the only way you have that whole and satisfying life is because we are in Jesus, right? That's, that's what he says. Look, you may have peace. He said, I have these things, said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. The only way that we have peace is if we are in Christ. The only way that the Old Testament Hebrews had peace and could experience that shalom was if they were in the covenant following God, doing what they were supposed to, leading a wholeness of life devoted to God. And we have that same peace because we are in Christ and we're leading a holy, devoted life to God. Him. He says, you will have peace. And that peace 
again, touches on that joy that we have because He is triumphant. And He makes this very, very clear, right? The last words of John 16. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The great promise that Jesus leads His disciples to understand the great promise that He leads us to understand this morning. It's not that we will have an untroubled life. We are not promised that. There will be troubles. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. The world hates us. And if the world hates us, you're not going to live an untroubled life. That's not the promise. The promise is even greater. The promise is an untroubled heart in the midst of a troubled world. One that is untroubled because we have joy. We have joy in the one that has overcome the world. And so let the world rage. Let the world do what the world does. We will feel the ripple effects of that trouble in our lives, but it's okay. I don't need an untroubled life because I have an untroubled heart because of a triumphant Jesus. And I can live each and every day in that joy because the cross is sufficient. And the cross and the resurrection and the ascension gives me joy. So we can rejoice knowing that no one will take our joy away from us. We can rejoice. We can take heart because Jesus, as the triumphant Savior, has overcome the world. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.